In the 19th and early 20th century, the existence of aliens was taken for granted by the general public. 1897, War of the Worlds was published. It was written after H.G. Wells's brother had asked him to imagine what it would be like if Martians did to Britain what the Britain were doing to Tasmania. In 1901, early radio pioneer Nikola Tesla created a stir when he reported he had received a radio transmission from Martians. And in 1938, Orson Welles caused widespread hysteria in the United States when he produced a dramatic radio broadcast that simulated aliens landing on the Earth. Until we began landing space probes on other planets, people believed aliens were common because they could see the local planets, and they had no reason to believe that those planets weren't inhabitable like ours. Venus and Mars turned out to be a disappointment, and the public has largely internalized an assumption that if there is advanced multicellular extraterrestrial life, it must originate from another star system, one located very far away. And this has become the best reason for doubting that UFOs are extraterrestrials. Call it the Long Distance Objection, or LOD. The argument goes like this. Traveling 10 or 100 light years to get from a star system like Vega to Earth would take too much time. We can't travel anywhere near the speed of light. You can't accelerate to more than a fraction of light speed because after all, relativity kicks in. Things begin to become infinitely heavy as they approach light speed, making it infinitely hard to accelerate them. And of course, then there's the problem of decelerating. And the idea of a spaceship carrying a crew or even a functioning robot that travels for hundreds of years often strikes people as implausible. After all, alien visitors wouldn't ever be able to report back what they see here, at least not within a human lifespan, because their signal won't be received for possibly hundreds of years. They have no hope of ever going back if they live anything like a normal human lifespan. So there doesn't seem to be uh, any point to traveling such a huge distance. But in this episode, I want to make the case that we should go back to the way they thought about space in the 19th century. Think of local space as a place potentially filled with a plethora of different kinds of life forms. I want to make this case to help us dispense with the long distance objection. And in making this case, I'm going to talk about science, hard science that supports the existence of potentially inhabitable worlds that are or have passed within a light year of our own. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session, tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. 
Welcome back. Now, today's episode is part of a larger argument. I think that if it looks like aliens are here, as many people think the Pentagon is now being forced to uh, evaluate and consider as a real possibility, and you can't accept that aliens would have come from a distant star system, then it's time to conclude aliens have come from a local world. That is a world within one light year of ours. And this episode is about making the case for local worlds, for what I will call the local extraterrestrial conjecture. Oh, but first, a quick note. Uh, in the last episode, I discussed a fallacious argument that I attributed to Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I was mistaken about that. I was looking at a CNN article that said, I want to believe aliens are here, but... And, uh, and then it had a photo of Neil deGrasse Tyson. It was a still of, uh, of a video. If you clicked on it, then it would play Neil deGrasse Tyson talking. And it said in big letters, Neil deGrasse Tyson on UFOs. So it turns out the video was a different thing. On that, that article was by Don Lincoln. Don Lincoln is an American physicist, author, host of the YouTube channel Fermilab. So he's a science commentator, just like Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is not as big of a name and so um, that's probably why CNN put a Neil deGrasse Tyson video embedded inside of an editorial written by Don Lincoln. But they, I got flipped up upside down by it, and I thought that Neil deGrasse Tyson wrote the editorial. So that's my mistake and my apologies to Neil deGrasse Tyson. And now I want to look at a different argument today. This is the argument that, you know, if aliens are out there, they have to come from a long way away, too far away, to have possibly reached the Earth. But the argument I will make today concludes, if humans are encountering aliens right now, or any time in recorded history, then those aliens likely came from local space. They likely transited from their world to ours, originating from less than one light year away. So this argument is not necessarily claiming that the alien homeworld is less than one light year away right now. It could be that it's more than one light year away now. At the time the aliens came here, they were likely less than one light year away. Also, this is a standalone argument. It does not conclude that aliens are here. It's just supposed to conclude that if they are here, then they probably came from local space. My arguments formed entirely using mainstream scientific sources. These are astronomy research papers that are peer-reviewed or secondary sources that draw from those research articles. And the purpose of this argument is to persuade skeptics, or at least enable you, the audience, to better communicate with skeptics, help convince them that we should take alien visitation seriously. I'm going to do it fast because I want this episode to do the hard work of contributing to the conversation about UFOs, um, and so I'm going to try to just put the bare bones of the argument out there, and I'm going to kind of run roughshod over details, I'm going to put a written version of this argument up on the internet, on the website, for people to look at. Here's the nutshell of the argument. Premise one, water worlds are the best candidates for life outside of Earth. Premise two, there have been many water worlds within one light year of Earth within the past one million years. Premise three, aliens originating on a water world could reach the Earth without being that much more advanced than we are today. Conclusion, if aliens are here, they probably came from a water world that was within one light year of here 
in the past one million years. Now, this is an argument to the skeptic who thinks that aliens could not have come from tens or hundreds of light years away. So if you don't have a problem with interstellar travel, you think that aliens could somehow move faster than light, or it's no problem that they travel for hundreds or thousands of years to get here, you will not find the conclusion compelling, right? So just remember that this is about arguing two people who are trying to rule out alien visitation because they can't handle, they will not accept the idea that aliens may have come from many light years away. Okay, so first of all, what is a water world? It means any world that is entirely covered with water or contains a partial subterranean sea underneath a global ice shell. I got the idea of a water world from a 2019 book written by Bernard Hennen. He is a science writer at the Sherwood Observatory in Oxford, and his book is titled Exploring the Ocean Worlds of Our Solar System. Most of what I'm about to talk about comes from this book in which Bernard Hennen argues that there are several positively identified worlds in our solar system that qualify as water worlds. They have a global ocean on them, an ocean that entirely covers rocky surface of their planet. So Hennen uses mainstream scientific sources to point out, hey, we're in agreement that there are likely multiple water worlds in our solar system. First of all, the moon of Jupiter, Ganymede. Also Callisto, another moon of Jupiter, and Europa. So there's three right off the bat. And then Saturn has two moons, Titan and Enceladus. And astronomers are confident that both of these are water worlds. They suspect significant subterranean liquid oceans on five other bodies too. So I'm not considering these bodies to be water worlds at this time, but they could be. Um, so the dwarf planet Ceres and Pluto. So Ceres is located between Mars and Jupiter, and Pluto is located out, I think it's normally out beyond Neptune, although it sometimes crosses over. These dwarf planets are both believed to have significant bodies of liquid water, but they, are, they don't know if they are global oceans surrounding um, a rocky core. When we're talking about these water worlds, what we're talking about is a world that it's a rock, then it's totally flooded with water, and then on top of it is an ice shell. In fact, with Ganymede, they're very confident that Ganymede is a water world. Ganymede has a 100 kilometer deep global salt water ocean. That's crazy. It's, a, it's an ocean that's much deeper than the oceans get here on Earth, and it covers the entire world. It also has a 150 kilometer thick icy crust. You got this global ocean, and then you have an icy crust. It helps to see these things, but this is a podcast. So uh, imagine taking a real cherry with a cherry pit and then making it into a chocolate covered cherry. So the cherry pit is the rocky core. The cherry is this global ocean. And then the chocolate around it is the icy shell. Okay, so they're thinking that there's at least five water worlds in our solar system. That's already five times the number of potentially inhabitable planets that we already knew about, right? We know, knew that the Earth had salt water on it. Now we're discovering there are five other worlds that have salt water. 
How do they know this? Because nobody's actually seen these saltwater oceans. Uh, if we had seen them, maybe we would have already discovered the life there. But we haven't seen it yet. So let's, let's go through this. One source of evidence. They can measure density. So they know the Earth is about 5 grams per cubic centimeter in terms of density. And they've calculated these moons are about 3 grams per cubic centimeter in terms of density. So they're way less dense than our own planet. The best explanation for that, there's something lighter than rock that's filling up space in there. It's hard to imagine uh, a big chunk of rock with water inside of it or hollow pockets inside of it because presumably the rock will just collapse on top of that, right? Because it's, you can't imagine, you know, like a huge hundreds and hundreds of cubic miles of um, cavern, right? Because that's going to collapse. Uh, so the model they have is a model where the rock's at the center and then something lighter than rock is around it. So they figure that's water. They figure it's water surrounding the rock. But they have some more direct evidence than that. So there's this moon Enceladus. And uh, maybe it's Enceladus. I'm struggling with pronunciation as usual. And the internet is saying that it's more like Enceladus. So that's really disappointing because I was hoping that it sounded like Enchilada. So they're saying this moon Enceladus, uh, it's shooting smoke plumes into space. So they said, let's study these plumes. And they discovered the plumes are feeding Saturn's debris rings. So you can study, it's called the E-ring. It's one of the rings of Saturn. You can study the E-ring and it's made up of this debris that's getting plumed out of Enceladus. And so uh, they studied the plumes and they studied the debris using space probes and they discovered these plumes, they're geysers. So Enceladus is actually shooting hot water, steam, probably turns immediately into ice, into space. So that's evidence that it has at least an ice shell, right? So there's, there is a lot of water on Enceladus. They can also, other ways of measuring albedo, some of these moons just look like they're made of ice. They're just bright white. But some of them literally, they just look like ice balls. And we have another source of evidence. We actually have evidence that they have liquid water, salt water oceans. So first of all, there's this one moon, Callisto. This is a moon of Jupiter. The Galileo space probe flew past Callisto to take pictures. When it flew by, it happened to have a magnetic sensor on board, and they were surprised to discover that even though Callisto has no magnetic field, uh, Callisto was interfering with the magnetic field of Jupiter. They figured the best explanation, that there's a big saltwater ocean on Callisto. What would be the alternative? A huge chunk of magnetized iron might be underneath the surface of Callisto. But remember earlier, I said these planets, these worlds, they're not planets, they're moons, they're not very dense. So given that they're not very dense, it's very unlikely they have huge solid chunks of iron. It gets even weirder. Here's another source of evidence. They were looking at this other moon, Ganymede. Ganymede is the largest moon, by the way. It's the largest moon in our solar system. And Ganymede has, um, well, it's bigger than Mercury. But Ganymede has its own magnetic field. And they can look at the Aurora Borealis on Ganymede. And they expected a certain rate of jiggle in the northern lights. They kind of oscillate and they move around. There was not the level of jiggling that they expected, which suggests some kind of stabilizing magnetic field. And the best candidate for a stabilizing magnetic field on Ganymede would be a saltwater ocean. So that is why they believe 
there is a global saltwater ocean on Ganymede. And indeed, as I said, they believe there's five of these worlds that have global saltwater oceans. Well, here's another question. Why, why are there oceans? Because these things are very far away. They're very far away from our sun. And they clearly have ice shells, or at least they have solid surface shells. So how do they have global oceans? How is it staying liquid? Geological activity. So it turns out, as I mentioned earlier, right, that moon Callisto, not Callisto, it's Enceladus, is giving off geysers. It's shooting plumes into space because it's geologically active. So these worlds are being, uh, they have volcanoes on them. They have earthquakes. They have geysers. What's causing this? Well, they orbit their planet, Jupiter or Saturn, and they don't orbit in a perfectly round circular orbit. They're on an elliptical orbit. And that causes a significant tidal effect. So their home planet is squeezing them and compressing them in different ways as they orbit. And that heats them up just the same way if you play squash with the squash ball and you have a very intense squash game, you feel that ball later and the ball is warm, right? Because the act of hitting it and causing it to compress causes the ball to flex, causes internal friction, gives off heat. So the heat of orbiting their home world causes these moons to have a lot of geological activity. And that geological activity is keeping parts of their icy shell liquefied. It's very cool that it's keeping a liquid ocean there underneath an ice shell, right? In some cases, the ice shell is actually thicker than the ocean, even though the ocean is itself deeper than our oceans here on Earth. Now, I'm moving very quickly here because I want to get the argument out there. But the, the idea here is that these are very good candidates for life. They have water. They have salt. This book I read by Bernard Hennen says they've looked at these geysers coming out of Enceladus and they found that there's six elements that are used to make amino acids. Carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, sulfur, and phosphorus. They found four of those in these geysers. They haven't been able to detect phosphorus and sulfur yet, but they're finding four out of the six elements that you need to build DNA, phosphorus and sulfur, possibly in the crust in some amounts. Um, and so if you have all six of those, then you could, you could build DNA. So you could make life like us. And they found entire amino acids. They found what they consider to be the building blocks of life in comets, which are just space ice, presumably made from the same thing as the surfaces of these water worlds. So it sounds like the building blocks of life are probably out there on these water worlds and they have water. What else do you need to have uh, life? Probably you need an energy gradient, right? So you need a source of energy. Well, energy is being supplied by those geothermal vents that are keeping the oceans liquid. So you have an energy source, you have minerals, you have amino acids, you have liquid water. You have oceans like ours, right, with salt water. Sounds like those are the best candidates for life right now that we know of are these five water worlds. Here's the next premise. There have been many water worlds within one light year of Earth in the past one million years. 
Well, I've just given you five. They've been around for more than a million years. But I can give you, I can't give you concrete examples of others, but I, I've looked at astronomy papers and found there are lots of reasons for thinking that there were others. First, I've mentioned Pluto. I didn't consider Pluto to be a water world because they're not sure. They really don't know, but it's a possible candidate, or at least a candidate for having a significant amount of liquid water on it. Uh, well, they're finding things that are Pluto-sized all the time. So it turns out that they think there's a whole, sort of like another asteroid belt out there called the Kuiper Belt, part of a cloud that's like a giant asteroid belt, except it's made of comets. And they've already found a number of objects out there that are the size of Pluto, around the size of Pluto. I found one, uh, Eris, which is named after the goddess of chaos. Eris is 127% the mass of Pluto. So there could be a number of icy objects out there that have water in them. I will admit, I don't understand how they keep the liquid water there if they have it, because they don't have the tidal heating effect that we see with these planets that are orbiting, they're not planets, they're moons. The moons that are orbiting Jupiter and Saturn, those moons uh, have liquid water because of the tidal effect. I suppose Pluto and other uh, bodies out there in the Kuiper belt have liquid water just because of their innate geothermal properties. Well, let's keep going. So the astronomers also speculate our solar system had more planets at one time than it does now. For example, it's widely believed a theoretical planet called Thea ran into the Earth 4.5 billion years ago. They think that's how we got the moon, because our moon is unusually large in proportion to the Earth. So they think that another planet hit our planet, and then the moon formed from the rubble that resulted from that collision. Uh, take a look at Uranus. All the planets in our solar system rotate like tops, sitting on a flat surface. Not Uranus, it rotates on its side, suggesting that something very big hit it and knocked it on its side. So maybe Uranus ate another planet. It ate something else that was out there. So I've also read articles saying that planets can be stripped away from their solar system. Our solar system sometimes comes close to other stars or random objects in space. When that happens, planets can be stripped away and they are expelled into the void. So within the past million years, there easily could have been other planets out there, full-blown planets. I've even found a paper saying astronomers have pretty good evidence that we had a close encounter with another star just 70,000 years ago. So another star actually passed within our solar system. And so that star, if it had planets on it, perhaps they were water worlds and they had life. And perhaps that life decided to, to switch sides, to jump, you know, like fleas jumping from one host to another because they just happened, you know, this was a good time to do it. We're passing by this solar system that has a lot of planets on it, has a bunch of water worlds like ours. So let's transition from our planet to one of these water worlds, or maybe they just set up a colony. And then there's rogue planets. So I already mentioned that planets get expelled from their solar system. These astronomers are now thinking there's five times as many rogue planets as stars in our galaxy. So think about that. There could be, you know, they say the closest star is 4.2 light years away. But if there are five times as many rogue planets as there are stars in the galaxy, 
there's probably a number of rogue planets between us and the nearest star. Which means there's probably been a number of rogue planets that came close to our star system. Possibly in the past million years, a rogue planets floated near our solar system. Imagine a Jupiter-like object that, like Jupiter, has moons. Imagine that some of those moons are water worlds. They don't need a sun, right? Because they've got geothermal energy. But maybe they became very advanced around the time they were floating past us. And again, they reached out their system to ours. Again, it's the flea model. Like fleas jumping from one host to, a ho to another host while those hosts get close to each other. And then living, you know, like Robinson Crusoe all alone on an island afterwards, right? So colonies may have been set up on our water worlds by beings from another water world anytime. A million years is just an arbitrary number that I made up. And uh, I hope to refine it as we develop this argument further in the future. So there's a number of different ways in which there might have been worlds actually were inhabited that came near us in the past million years. So the beings came near us, maybe they could transition to our world from theirs. And this leads me to the third premise. Aliens from a nearby world could reach Earth without being that much more advanced than we are today. One of the big obstacles to space travel for us humans is that we have a big planet. It's got a tremendous gravity well. And um, these water worlds that I've been looking at, these moons, they have a significant, significantly smaller gravity well. So it would be easier for an industrial civilization to move things up into space. They do have to drill up through their ice shell and get to the surface. And then they have to go through that psychological horror of discovering there's no ceiling to the universe, right? We thought there was a ceiling. And then it turns out that actually it's just a shell and the whole universe is on the outside. I imagine that's horrifying. But we went through something similar. We used to think that we were living under a big dome, right? That if you look at the, the way the ancient Hebrews, for example, thought about space and the heavens, they thought that God literally built a dome and that the stars were just kind of sticking on the edge of the dome. And so, um, you know, we've all had to deal with that. We've all had to get over the horror of discovering, I don't know if horror is the right word, the awe of discovering that uh, the universe is a lot bigger than we thought. And it's not structured the way we thought it was structured. If we can get over it, I don't see why they can't get over it either. And even at our current level of development, we've sent spaceships out a great distance. The Voyager 1 probe left in 1977. It's been traveling for 43 years. It's gone 21 billion kilometers. It's now outside our solar system. It's still sending back signals. So something drifted by our solar system. Another planet drifted by about as far away as the Voyager probe is now. I don't see any reason why those people might not have sent significant larger probes, right? Or spaceships containing their people. Especially out there in the outer solar system where ice is plentiful. Why not just build a kind of a snow globe type spaceship, right? You just hollow out maybe a comet. You compress its surface and you make a nice like snow globe type thing. You fill it with water, you put an engine on it, and you just kind of drift at a leisurely pace to wherever you want to go. You drift into Titan or you drift into um, Enceladus or you drift into Callisto and then you set up shop there. Conclusion. If aliens are here, they probably came from a water world. 
that was within one light year of here in the past one million years. And again, one million years is really arbitrary. I'm just trying to say recently in geologically recent history, they would have come here from a nearby place. And nearby is arbitrary too. Why did I say one light year? Because that's our unit of measure is a light year. But you know, maybe it was 1.8 light years away or maybe way less than one light year. But I'm but the main point of this episode is to respond to the skeptic who denies the possibility of alien visitation on the grounds that the distances are too vast. Because the skeptic is their reasoning, okay, there are these weird things in the sky, but aliens can't get here because the distances are too vast. Therefore, these weird things in the sky are mirages or Chinese hypersonic drones. And I say, look, it's time for you to think differently. What you need to say is, Okay, there are weird things in the sky, and they couldn't have come from many light years away. Therefore, they must have come from local space. And here's another reason for thinking that they came from local space. It's often said advanced aliens won't be interested in us. They'd be so advanced, you know, they've seen it all before. They already know what we're like. They have models where they can simulate all the different possible kinds of worlds and what they might turn into, and so we would just be... You know, another, they would just categorize us, right? They just take a quick, quick photograph and say, oh, there's another one of those worlds type A.359 that generate hairless bipedal creatures that, you know, burn fossil fuels for energy and then they get into nuclear energy and, you know, you know, 25% chance of self-destructing in the next hundred years. They'd have us all labeled and categorized, but the local aliens might be way more interested because they're not as advanced. So it takes them more work to study this planet. Maybe they set up shop in the oceans. Think about this. Um, if they're coming from a water world, I imagine they'd be more comfortable under the water. And by the way, this is where I've clearly stopped using scientific sources now for evidence. We've, we've clearly veered into pure speculation at this point. I'm going to start wrapping it up now. But the whole point of this episode, yeah, we need to break away from the constraints that we've been using to think about alien life. As we're confronting empirical evidence suggestive of alien life, it's not conclusive by any means, but it's suggestive of alien life, we need to consider you know, more flexibly where that alien life might have come from, and we need to reevaluate our priors, as the, the rationalist community says. We need to rethink some of the core assumptions we've made about how life would have gotten here. And uh, that's really it. That's all I want to say, because I think there's a lot to digest in this episode. And uh, I can do more episodes on this. I could go into much more detail if you'd like to hear more detail. This book, um, Exploring the Ocean Worlds of Our Solar System by Bernard Hennen, describes how Ganymede, in the newest models of Ganymede, they think it has multiple global subsurface oceans. It's like a frozen chocolate-covered cherry where then they made another layer of chocolate and another layer of cherry and then another layer of chocolate over that. It's incredible um, how complex they think Ganymede's world, Ganymede is as a world. And uh, it'll just blow your mind. And so, you know, I think we should be looking at some of these speculative and... Um, Indo speculative astronomy papers and then also be looking at the the research that says you know here's reasons for thinking there were possible you know habitable worlds near us 
you know, one last reason for taking this mode of reasoning seriously. When we talk about aliens as being so advanced, they're so far ahead of us that, you know, we'll never understand them and they'll not be interested in us. Um, we could be overlooking a possibility that if it were true, would make the alien situation much more manageable. We might just be dealing with a competitor race that they're not that much more advanced than us. They're almost peers. It might be possible for us then to like think about excluding them from access to our oceans if we don't want them to take all of our resources. Or we might think more about how we're going to uh, get along with them or finding where they're from, where are their local bases, right? Learning from them, negotiating with them, forming uh, relationships with them. Like this is all more conceivable if they're less advanced. And so the possibility that they're less advanced is one that we should take more seriously. And so I've put a lot out there. And thank you for, for sticking with us if you have stuck with this episode so far. I know this show is mostly about the strange and unexplained. This is certainly strange. Certainly, uh, aliens are not yet explained, but it is more science-oriented than normal. And that's just because I think we need to be making this argument. We need to be making the argument that we need to start taking aliens more seriously to the skeptics, because the skeptics aren't coming up with anything new, and so uh, we need to. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Until next time, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.